0: all right we're back to numbers we got through probably the first third of content in numbers last week and our job is to finish it up tonight Uh, please note that there are some maps on the back of this one Uh, you'll you may remember that there's really a three there's a two-part and then a three-part structure to the book of numbers depending on how you divide it it's a hard book to divide uh but in the middle section if you take the three-part division Israel is wandering through the wilderness, and a lot of that time is spent at Kadesh Barnea. And you'll see that on the first map uh, to the northeast of Sinai. There's the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh Barnea, just south of the wilderness of Zin. So that's where Israel spent a lot of their time wandering. Numbers opens with Israel. Uh, yes, Stephen. is the uh, wilderness of Zin where David hid out during part of this time when he was um, I believe so. Uh, unless that was Ziz. I know there was a town that like, the Philistines were in. Okay, that would probably be the wilderness of Zin then, because the Philistines were right down there uh, on the coast there. Yeah, I, I wish I uh, knew that his story more detailed. Um, I do. You did bring something up last time that we're going to come back to here in a little bit. <laughs> So I don't always have the answer on the spot, but I'll go find it. So Kadesh Barnea there you see in the Sinai uh, Peninsula. And then if you look to, on the map on the right side on the back, this is kind of zoomed out and uh, panned up to the north there, to the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee is the, kind of the anchor points when you look at the, the map of Israel. And there on the east side of the Jordan River, you have Gad and Reuben. And they decided to go ahead and stake their, their claim on those lands before Israel crossed into the promised land. And that, that's all a part of the book of Numbers as well. But Numbers really covers that journey from Israel's uh, camp at the base of Mount Sinai to the border of the promised land. You've heard of the, the songs that talk about looking into Jordan. You know the song on Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. That is rooted in this story. The longing that we're going to go to that land that has been promised, a land flowing with milk and honey and all our enemies will be no more. It's a good promise and it will be fulfilled. It has been, already not yet kind of way. All right, book of Numbers, I'll flip back over to the front You'll remember there's, uh, there's the first generation of Israel, generally good or generally bad. First, first generation of Israel in the wilderness, it's bad. They were not uh, permitted into the promised land. And then you have the second generation, and there's a lot of hope around them. They're presented very positively. Maybe these are going to be the ones. And indeed, they are the ones that God used to take Israel into the promised land, but we see that they also were just as fickle as the first generation. Now there seems to be, this is uh, an interesting thing I was reading about the book of Numbers. There seems to be this question about Moses' authority because if uh, Israel is going into the promised land without Moses, is he really that legitimate of a leader? If God's not going to let him go in, is maybe Joshua more important? So there's this, some of these questions about Moses' uh, authenticity as a leader. And so you actually see Israel wrestling with that in the middle part of this book Moses' is, um, leader and, and in the leadership in the end we see God has called Moses he is the legitimate one that God has called to lead his people but it doesn't come without its um, its fair share of questions you see the people rebelled against Moses um, I'm looking here at the the middle of the that center column when Moses struck the rock, that was the turning point. That's, that's not the point I was, I was trying, trying to complete here. I don't know where I was looking for one more point that I can't find. I apologize for that. Um, Okay. Israel's at the base of Sinai. They're trained up to go to war. The first generation fails because they wander and they complain. The second generation is uh, raised up under the leadership of Joshua and Caleb, Joshua, is established as the successor to Moses in chapter 27. But before we get into the content of the second generation, you've got to remember it starts with a census. And that's, that's numbers. It's two-part structure. You've got the first census that sets out the first generation and the second census in chapter 26 that sets out the second generation. that's where the book gets its name, numbers, because there are all these numbers. And then there are these uh, all these consecration and renewals that go on in chapters 28 through 30, a bunch of sacrifices. And then there's this taste of victory in Midian. So if you have your Bibles open up to uh, Numbers 31... Here you see a really optimistic explanation of what is happening in Israel. You see there is this vengeance on Midian. That's the title in my Bible. Uh, Numbers 31 verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward you shall be gathered to your people. Okay, so this was God telling Moses, uh, you're going to see a victory here. This second generation, we're in the second generation. They're going to get this foretaste of victory because they're about to go into the land and conquer the land. And then they're about to experience victory after victory after victory. And so this is uh, kind of prepping them to get this taste of this victory that's coming. And then immediately Reuben and Gad, maybe they get too comfortable. They just go ahead and settle down. Well, we took this land, let's just stay here, rather than waiting to enter into the promised land. Now, I, I can definitely see myself, I would be tempted that way. Oh, we've been wandering for like two generations now. This is a pretty good land. Can't we just stay here? Rather than waiting for God to fulfill His promise. It, it, would, it would make a lot of sense to me. Like I'm tired. My family's tired. We've had enough of this, this nomadic lifestyle. Let's just sit here. And uh, there seems to be a con- some concession, and it's like, all right, fine, you can stay. And it, with a, as much blessing as can be, they they uh, they stay there in the land on the east side of the Jordan. Are there any direct parallels between the three or two and a half tribes staying and like the narrative between Abraham? And Oh, that's a good question. Not quite, but... Yeah. That's a good question. I do not have an answer for that. That's okay. It <laughs> wasn't um, yep. And then you, there's this final preparation of the nation to enter the land after there's a little bit of, like, the boundaries uh, defined uh, after... After there's a recap of Israel's journey, and then Moses gives this final exhortation, uh, then we head into just these final uh, preparations, the, the tribal chiefs, the Levites and their cities, the cities of refuge, uh, and then uh, that's, that brings us up to the end of the book. Okay. The message and the theology. Let's here's here's where the, where things get um, to me really interesting at a biblical level because you start to see how these ideas are woven in through all of Scripture. First of all, we see God's faithfulness in the face of faith in the face of Israel's unfaithfulness, and that is the recurring theme. First generation unfaithful, and then God is patient. You've heard of the cycles of repentance and rebellion and forgiveness and repentance and rebellion. Uh, and even the second generation ends up that way. And even once they get into the land, they're still that way. And then they get their judges and they want kings and they get their kings and they're still that way. And, uh, and then even under their kings, they're, they, they're exiled because of their unfaithfulness. So it, it leaves you wondering, is, has God just messed up by choosing people? Are people, just in general, just the wrong choice? Um, and if you're looking for somebody to be successful in in, in obedience, yeah, people are the wrong choice. Um, except that God decided to keep that into the covenant. And this goes back to Genesis. This goes back to Genesis twelve, fifteen, seventeen, 17, and 22. <laughs> this goes back to the fact that God has promised to... To do what humanity is incapable of doing on behalf of humanity as a human. So God himself came and did what Israel could never do. So you see all these cycles of unfaithfulness and all it does is it exalts for you your view of who Jesus is. As the faithful one. He is the new Israel and the new Judah who did what these Israelites failed to do. He is the one who, uh, who successfully does what is required of, of God's people. I have a quote here from Miles Van Pelt. Uh, bottom of the second column spills onto the top of the third column. It says, Israel had been an idolatrous people in Egypt and even at the foot of Mount Sinai. They desired the provision and predictability of slavery in Egypt to the challenge of utter dependency upon God in the wilderness. Do you see your heart in that? You desire the predictability and the meager provision of slavery in Egypt to the challenge of utter dependency upon God in the wilderness. That's the hardest part is this utter dependency, because at least there's some predictability when you're in jail, when you're a slave. Um, God is—you've heard the quote. He's good, but he's not safe. The wilderness is sometimes hard, always hard. Uh, and we don't, as we learned this morning, there's not a moment of rest for us. That, that's that's not true. There's not a moment of vacation for us. For us, we do find rest, of course. God has given us rest as as Christians, but um, not vacations. We don't get to prop our feet up by the beach in our Christian walk. And I think that's what Israel was Israel was wanting, and I can see myself siding with Gad and Reuben. Theologically, Numbers shows Israel's faithless response to all of God's blessings given and promised in Exodus and God's patience with them and faithfulness despite their rebellion. So all the negative faithlessness of Israel is countered by all the faithfulness of God, which is incredible. That's what Numbers uh, highlights time after time after time. When you come toward uh, the New Testament, you see that the wilderness is a place of trial, of growth, and faith. Early on in Mark, we, uh, we studied the wilderness is a place of renewal and expectation. You expect something to happen in the wilderness. This is where God trains His people to trust. And with John the Baptist, he went out to the wilderness. That was an important thing because this was a place of trial and growth of faith, a place of renewal, and something was about to happen. Christ was about to come. It says Israel was being trained in the wilderness to go in and to take the promised land. There's this expectation and this preparation for what is next. So the wilderness is a crucial thing. And this is, and this is in many senses, the foundation of that wilderness theme throughout the Bible. It's right here in Numbers. Then there's the necessity of faith to receive God's grace and word. We talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, it's, is it just the act of, um, you know, visually seeing the serpent that saved or was it the act of looking to the serpent for healing that saves uh, the point is it's it's looking to receive god's grace with faith and to receive his word by faith uh, that one is saved and it's necessary you have to look in faith but you also saw this with um the lamb the blood of the lamb over the doorposts with the angel of death at the passover so it's a theme that continues And you see, Yahweh is the covenant-keeping God. And this is where I want to camp out for just a minute. This will, uh, we need to circle back to what Stephen brought up last week, this question of, didn't God want to restart with Moses and just kind of wipe out and say, all right, we're going to do this again with just you, Moses. A couple things I think we need to think through here. First of all, uh, this comes from Exodus 32. So if you want to flip over there, feel free. Exodus 32, verses 9 through 14. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. What covenant does that remind you of? Noahic covenant, I'm going to wipe out all this wickedness and start again with you. And then making a great nation out of him, what covenant does that remind you of? The Abrahamic covenant. Is God replacing the Abrahamic covenant? Is God saying, I'm not going to do it with Abraham anymore? Well, um, we need to ask, first of all, would God be unjust to do this? no would god be breaking his covenant promise to do this if he's promised to abraham i'm going to save you and, and and your your generations after you and i'm going to do what you can't do for you and he says now i'm going to wipe you out Is he breaking his covenant you're actually headed in the right direction. I think you're absolutely headed in the right direction. Because that promise to Abraham and to his descendants was to all of his descendants by what? By faith. So it's all those who then trust as Abraham did. For God to wipe out all of his unbelieving people, he's not breaking that covenant that he's promised to save his Believing remnant. There's not going to be one person who said, who truly, honestly believed the Lord, and God said, no, I, I decided I wasn't going to go that route. Um, that's, that's not what would be going on here. This is, uh, it, I, it, a couple ways. Either you could look at this as God was testing Moses, um, it could also be God was, uh, his, his um, emotions were portrayed. In in a human sense, because it seems like Moses is able to change God's mind. Can, did Moses actually change God's mind? Of course, there's lots of discussion about that. But um, the the point is, um, forgive me. My I am I am fading right now. Um. <laughs> oh man, I apologize. Um god's the way that God keeps his promise doesn't always look the way we expect because in just a, a few verses um uh, I'm looking here and no this is this is in numbers in in uh in numbers right before the second generation steps up, you actually start to see that God has already been keeping his promise to the Israelites in a very tangible way, so if you go to numbers chapter. Um twenty-two. Here we're getting into some really weird stuff with Balaam and Balak. And I actually would like to spend a couple moments here too while we're here. Balak is the king of Moab. And he called on this seer named Balaam and asked for curses. He said, hey, Balaam, I'll pay you if you'll come and curse the Israelites for me. That's, that's pretty much how the story goes. And so Balaam's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, and then there's, he gets called again, and there's this, um, this strange encounter where uh, Balaam's donkey... Uh, talks to him. So think for a minute, if you're you're Balaam um, and your donkey starts talking to you and you talk back, you're used to some weird stuff. And I mean that seriously. I think Balaam was probably in some dark arts. As somebody who was regularly called upon to give blessings and curses, Um, very possibly, um, involved with bad, bad spiritual forces, spiritual forces of darkness. Uh, now we see this is, this one's unique because Balaam also ends up receiving revelation from God himself and a call from God himself. So this could have been a turning point in the life of Balaam, but Balak, uh, in this story, he brings Balaam along and he says, um, can you come up on this mountain and curse Israel? And Balaam had just, since, he, since his donkey talked to him, and the angel, he was able to see the angel of the Lord standing there. First of all, Balaam didn't even seem so surprised that the angel of the Lord was there. He was just like, oh, angel of the Lord's there. If I had known that, I wouldn't have been mad at my donkey. That was more his response. Uh, and so again, that, I think that shows us Balaam. Uh, there, there really is a spiritual element to what Balaam has been doing as, professionally. And so the angel of the Lord, the Lord actually tells Balaam, go, go with the men to Balak. But, this is verse 35, this is really important, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. So he did, he went to Balak and Balak said, all right, we're going to try a few times here. I'm going to take you up to this, this, uh, this point, this vantage point, and let's look out over Israel and curse them for me. And so what does Balaam do? He comes up to that point. He looks out over Israel and he blesses them because he has to speak what God has said. And God has revealed to him blessing over the nation, over these people. And so uh, I think this is important because in three different places, one, one commentator put it this way, and I think this is really, really interesting. There was not a vantage point where you could see the whole nation and curse them all at once. Because they had grown so much, because there was so much multitude, so many. God had already made his people a great nation at this time, as he had promised to Abraham. Uh, So there is already this sense of God blessing his people. And of, of course, we would expect that because this is the promise keeping God. Uh, so really, um, the story of Balaam and Balak is this for me? It's begun to raise some bizarre questions of spiritualism. And you turn to Jude, and when we were preaching, going through Jude, uh, Jude tells us, "Don't don't have the same error as Balaam. Balaam's error, which is one of being a false uh, prophet, just kind of a uh, you know get paid to to say what what, you, what they want you to say kind of thing." Uh, this false teacher thing, Balaam seems to be mixed in to that category in the book of Jude. So I think multiple layers here. We talk about the talking donkey as if it's kind of lighthearted and funny, but really that uh, gets you thinking about the, the spiritual realm and, and the, makes you grateful for the protection that God has given his people uh, with his His presence, his spirit in us, and his angels who uh, who are around us and protect us. So there you have the third point under the biblical themes. Yahweh is the covenant keeping God. Forgive me if I have opened a bunch of cans of worms and not gotten to them. Questions and thoughts on that right now. Okay. Uh, We see God will always preserve his people slash remnant. God will always preserve his people and his remnant. Um. I'll put it this way also, when we were talking about whether God would be unjust to, to wipe out his people, even if there were believers, there are still temporal consequences for our sins. So for them to die for their sins, uh, yet live eternally by their faith, is not unjust. Right? Christians still face the consequences of their sins. Uh, and sometimes it does result in physical death, but it does not result in eternal death. And so uh, I don't think that it would have been unjust for God to do that. Um, and I also don't think that um, that God was, I don't think his mind was changed. I think this was one of those moments where when he came to Moses, it was um, a question of what kind of leader are you? And are you going to trust my word? Are you going to trust that I am a God who keeps my promises to my people uh, or not? So there's my answer to your question from last week, Stephen. <laughs> And then God's people await the promised land. This, and then I put in parentheses, pilgrims. The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, we were given a really nice copy of uh, a kid's version of the Pilgrim's Progress for Elliot, beautiful book. And it's, I think it does, for a kid's book, a really good job of taking the really important parts of that story, Pilgrim's Progress, and boils it down. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, you should read it. If you don't like to read, read the kid's version. <laughs> The pictures are great. Yeah, that's right. You can listen to it. And they make lots of abridged versions. Some are good. Some are bad. Ten were bad and two were good. There are, uh, sorry, bad joke. Um, Yeah, so yeah, there are lots of abridged ones. It's a great, great book. And it reminds us that we are like Israel. We're wanderers. This wilderness cannot be our home. And so that gives us a sense of, uh, of, like again, like we heard this morning, we have to be awake. We have to keep our eyes set on where we're going. We can't, we can't fall asleep on the job here, and we can't get comfortable here. Those are things that I was told a lot growing up. But those are things that you don't learn until you're actually disappointed by the world. Right? Right? Um, there are so many times that you can give, you probably have given good advice to younger people and watch them just disregard it because they've not learned it yet. But those words, they come back later and you're like, oh man, yeah, they were right. This world cannot be trusted. This world cannot bring that comfort that I long for. Uh, and when you start wanting to go back into slavery uh, like Israel did, Rather than wait for God's promises, you've lost sight. And you've not taken God at His word. And, and so I, I say that purely from a place of um, personal conviction. I want to read to you some of these parallels that I noted on the page there from uh, this Miles Van Pelt chapter. And these parallels will help us see how we as the church are a lot like Israel in the wilderness. Like the wilderness generations, the most important and blessed aspects of life in the promised land have come to us in the wilderness. That seems counterintuitive. Like the wilderness generation, the most important and blessed aspects of life in the promised land have come to us in the wilderness. We live in the wilderness now. And some of those blessed things that we long for We actually have already have. The glory descended upon the new Israel at Pentecost, and we have the living water of the Spirit and the true bread that has come down out of heaven and given life to the world. We're already getting these foretastes of that blessed promised land. We're not sheep without a shepherd, because the good shepherd has laid down his life for us and taken it up again. And He has appointed under-shepherds over us so that we will know the provision and protection of God until we enter that final rest. All this is because just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, Jesus Christ was lifted up on the cross to become the cursed one and to overthrow the ruler of this world. I think it's helpful for us to remember that here in the wilderness... It's true this is not home it's true this is not comfortable it's true this does not bring us fulfillment this world does not but in it and in the journey home god has already blessed us with incredible blessings he's given us his word his people he's given us um his spirit and and so we get a foretaste and i think sunday is supposed to be that just another reminder of how one day we will all be able to come into the presence of God together with this sense of rest and not anxiety this sense of joy and not fear uh, and and so now we get a taste of it every every week and we get it every day by his word so that's that's why it's so important to to pray and to read uh, daily and to talk about these things and to be encouraged by one another and to sit around and talk about them and Uh, rather than, next time you have people over, rather than asking about uh, how bad their March Madness bracket was, ask them about what the Lord's been teaching them about their own sinfulness in light of the gospel and how that's made Jesus look bigger. Uh, Just those types of questions, because in this wilderness, uh, we, we have blessed aspects of that promised land life already because Christ has come and given them to us. So that's, uh, that, I think that's just a, a great little reminder for us. <clears throat> okay, y'all ready for this last section? Christ in Numbers. <clears throat> Questions, thoughts. <clears throat> All right, Jesus is the tabernacle. Who is with his people? The tabernacle is the place of God's presence among his people, and we see that in numbers two, verse two and 17. we also see it in John 1, 14. the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's who Jesus is. He is God with us, Emmanuel. We see in the tribe of Levi a uh, foreshadowing of Christ um, Christ's office of priest. The tribe of Levi and Christ the one uh, all the firstborn in Israel were redeemed. you see the lamp stand in the tabernacle, which foreshadows that Christ is the light of the world, a light that does not go out and will never go out. You see Moses who intercedes for his people uh, let's look let's look at these two here um, chapter fourteen verses thirteen through nineteen. <clears throat> And then we'll look at Hebrews 7.25. If somebody will flip over to Hebrews 7.25, I'll ask you to read that here in a minute. Thank you. We'll start here in Numbers 14. Verse 13, But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to them to give swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. Stephen, this is your story reiterated. Verse 17, And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. What a beautiful prayer saying, God, you have promised and I expect you to stand by your word. Is that really a call to God? No, that's a call to Moses to remember what God has promised and to live in confidence of what God has promised. God knows what he's promised. He's never once intended to back out of what he's promised. But this is a reminder. This, can you imagine the training that God was doing in Moses' heart? to get him to the point where he could pray this. That's what God was doing uh, for Moses. And it's, it's a beautiful prayer. Verse 19, Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Jesus prays as well for his people. Jesus also is the one who can uh, forgive sins. Moses can't forgive sins. Moses can only wait for Christ to forgive sins. Uh, Deanna, can you read for us the Hebrews Hebrews seven twenty five. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. And you get a glimpse of that with a high priestly prayer? See Christ praying for his people in John chapter 17 so when you think of yourselves as Israel wandering and you think of Jesus as the leader who prays on your behalf it helps you see how much uh, just that much more beautifully what Christ has done for you as your intercessor he is the red heifer without defect whose blood and ashes purify the unclean he is the rock to which Moses was to speak for water because life now comes from the word preached rather than the word struck again. Uh, just an interesting interpretive thing here. It says that some translations say that Moses struck the rock twice. <coughs> some translations say that Moses struck the rock the second time. It's, it's a Hebrew fuzziness, uh, apparently. So whether he actually struck the rock twice that time or just struck it a second time, um, I think it makes the most sense with the biblical theological framework, but I'm not going to read that directly into that interpretation. But um, that Moses struck the rock once, and Christ was that rock who was struck once for our sins, who poured out life in the wilderness by being struck once, and there's no need to strike him again, which is why it was such an offense that Moses would disobey God. Instead, life comes now not by striking the rock, but if he had spoken to it, that word from God, because Moses was a prophet, that word from God is what would bring forth life. Uh, And that's how we live now, as uh, Israelites in the wilderness. We are those who um, who go to the Word to receive life. We talked about the bronze serpent lifted up in the wilderness to deliver from death. Yes. I apologize, but I know you guys probably talked about this last week. No, you're fine. But why a serpent? serpent (laughs) Great question. Why a serpent? I'll give you an answer afterward. Okay. Anybody else who wants that answer, just come up here. We'll talk about. It. I'll read you a good answer out of the out of the book. It is confusing because a serpent seems like such a sign of evil, and it is. Then you see uh, Jacob. God, Jesus is. Excuse me. Uh, the Jacob and the Israel from Balaam's third oracle in chapter twenty-four. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful oracle. I re- I reread it this afternoon, uh, but I want us to really actually look at the final oracle, Numbers twenty-four. So if you flip over there to the whole Balaam thing. So so we're just going to get into some of what Balaam actually did prophesy. Balak asked him to bring a curse. And these are the things that Balaam actually brought instead. They are blessings. So the the Jacob and the Israel from the third oracle in chapter 24, verses 3 through 9. But then (laughs) Balak said, all right, I've had enough. And Balaam's like, actually, here's one more for you. And so that one more for you is chapter 24, verses 15 through 19. We'll just read verses. uh, We'll start in verse 15. And he took, took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. First of all, does that mean if you come from Moabite, Moabite uh, lineage that you're, you're doomed? No, because Moab is the nation that signals, along with the other pagan nations, signals wickedness. So if you are uh, one of the wicked ones, then you will be totally crushed. It's also a really interesting analogy. Crush the head of Moab you see the connection with crushing the head of the serpent, right? This is, this is Christ crushing. He is going to be the star in the scepter who will crush the head of wickedness. Uh, so there's uh, the star in the scepter that, that points forward to Christ who will come. And then lastly, in chapter 25, uh, there's this guy named Phineas who is jealous for God and for making atonement for his people Israel. That's in chapter 25, verses 10 through 13. Since we're so close, we might as well just look at it. Anybody want to read verses 10 through 13 of chapter 25? And this will be our closing. Thank you, Amy. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say... it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Thank you. Atonement for the people of Israel. And they were longing for it. They were waiting for it. And we've seen it. We have the full revelation of God now in Scripture. Let's not lose sight of what God has done to redeem His people when they have been so faithless. When we are faithless, he is faithful. What a great God. That's the book of Numbers. In a tiny little nutshell.